Good morning. I'd like to throw an image up on the screen for you this morning. We'll start with this. Is God dead? This was the cover of Time magazine 50 years ago this week, April 8th, 1966. It's the first time that Time magazine had uh, only used text on the cover of their magazine. As you can imagine, it was pretty controversial uh, at the time, both the cover as well as the story which accompanied it, written by John Elson. The question, though, reflected the anxiety of the time. The 20th century was, after all, supposed to be the time that we as human beings solved all of our problems. With the help of industrialism and technology, we were going to reach new heights. But by 1966, with two world wars in the rearview mirror, and the racism, the, the evils of racism that the civil rights movement put on display, hopes of that soon faded. And so haunted by the evil and the injustice that they witnessed in the 20th century, a group of radical, death-of-God theologians asked this question, claimed this, that God is dead. The cover story inspired over 3,000 fairly angry letters from readers and countless angry sermons since then. This will not be an angry sermon. The National Review responded by asking whether time were in fact dead. It's hard to imagine what the reaction to this would be today. We live in a completely different culture, a different time. As theologian Miroslav Volf has suggested, a better question for our time might be, what good would it be for the life of the world if God lives? Friends, this is the question that we as a community of Christ followers get to answer every day, every week, every year of our lives. What good would it be for the life of the world if God lives? Today is the third Sunday of Easter. Just a couple of weeks ago, we gathered here and we proclaimed that God is alive, that he is risen. He is risen indeed. People, it's still Easter. If you're unfamiliar with the liturgical calendar, which is essentially how Christians keep time, we are right now in Eastertide. Easter Sunday commences an entire season of celebration, of worship, from the resurrection all the way to Pentecost, that day when the Holy Spirit falls fresh on that first community of Christians. So we are in Eastertide. And one of my favorite things about Eastertide is that it reminds us not to jump from one event to the next too quickly. That we have the time to celebrate Christ's resurrection, to reflect upon it, to soak it in. If Lent was a long period of, of fasting, and folks, I gave up watching TV for that time, okay? So it was a long period of fasting. But if Lent is a long period of fasting, Eastertide is the season of feasting. It's the time we get to celebrate that God is alive and lives and reigns. We've talked a bit recently, too, about thin places, 
about those places that the veil between heaven and earth seems remarkably thin. And to me, Eastertide is a thin place because it's during this time between Christ's resurrection and his ascension and the falling of the Holy Spirit that Christ unites heaven and earth in his resurrected body. That's a thin place for me. It's during Eastertide that we get to witness how these first Christians became the first citizens of this new creation that started with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And it's during this time that we get to kind of, maybe for the first time, see what an answer to that question. What good would it be for the life of the world if God lives? We get to see people answer that question for the first time. And in this new creation, the risen Jesus walks among us to demonstrate that the living God walks among us even now. During this time, we reflect on the new life which is possible because Christ is alive. And we discover what Frederick Buchner meant when he said that the resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. Our story, our text for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. It is a familiar story in Eastertide. It's a time when Jesus appears to a couple of wanderers on the, on the road to Emmaus. It's from Luke 13, verses, or 24, excuse me, verses 13 through 35. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to, to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. 
Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Would you pray with me? Holy God, take now my words and use them to amplify your reconciling and liberating word. I ask that you take our thoughts and renew them this morning and then take our lives and fill us with the courageous love that we need to serve the world you have called us to serve. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So there's a lot going on in this passage. But I think really to understand this text, we've got to get in touch with disappointment. We've got to get in touch with disappointment. I don't think this is going to be that hard for us. Uh, Frankly, I think that there's a lot to be disappointed with. The current state of politics, for one. It's frankly pretty disappointing. The unpredictability of the economy. The generations-old systems of inequality that we just, no matter how hard we try, just can't seem to fix. Name any ism, and you can probably find something to be disappointed with. In our text for this morning, in this story that we have just read, we encounter two disciples leaving Jerusalem overwhelmed with their own disappointment and grief. They're talking about everything they'd just seen during the week, the triumphal entry, but then the betrayal, the arrest, and then the crucifixion. Jesus approaches them and begins to walk with them. We know it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And all we know about them is one of their names is Cleopas, and the other is unnamed. Maybe it could be you. Maybe you could be a traveler on this road today. I mean, surely someone in our congregation today in this room has heard bad news this week from a doctor. Someone's heard hurtful words from a friend or a family member. Someone's kids are in trouble again. Someone has made a mistake that's going to cost them or those they love something. Maybe someone in here is praying for God to do something and God just seems to have other plans. Maybe that someone is you. Maybe you could be this unnamed traveler walking to Emmaus with your own disappointments. After all, we don't know really anything about Emmaus. Luke tells us that it's seven miles from Jerusalem and that apparently that's enough time for Jesus to literally tell them everything about himself. All we know is that the road to Emmaus is a road traveled on the way away from disappointment, on the way away from heartbreak. It is the road of broken dreams. And my sense is that we spent a lot of time on this road. Spent a lot of time on this road trying to make sense of what to do next when we have reached our wit's end. When what we thought was worth our lives has actually burned us out or washed us up. So maybe all of us can join these two on the way to Emmaus. When Jesus asks them what they're discussing, when he comes up next to them and just kind of butts into their conversation, Luke tells us that they just stood there looking sad. It's just the saddest sentence in the Bible. Like They just stood there. like They had no reaction. They just were exhausted by their own grief, by their own disappointment. And out of the depths of his grief, Cleopas questions Jesus. Like, are you the only person in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on here? Which, like, 
is how grief works, right? I mean, like, surely there were people in Jerusalem that didn't know what was really going on. I mean, Jerusalem's a really big place. But when you are deep in your disappointment, when you're living in grief, there is nothing worse than feeling like other people can kind of just keep on going with their lives. So Cleopas is like, are you really the only person? Like, come on. Can you see we're, we're sad? And even though they had heard stories about the resurrection, right, the, the first people to preach the gospel were these women who came and declared that the tomb was empty, that Jesus was alive. Even though they had heard that story already, they still weren't able to recognize Jesus. And before we're too hard on these guys for not seeing Jesus, we should probably think a little bit about like maybe the last couple of weeks where since we've, you know, since last time we met and declared that Jesus was alive, like have we recognized Jesus showing up in our lives the last couple of weeks? So if we're vulnerable enough this morning, we have to ask ourselves, do we always immediately recognize when Jesus shows up incognito to join us on our journey? To this day, I think that Jesus shows up in disguise, incognito, in many different places, usually the last place that we would expect. For me, for me it was this week. I had an experience this week. I, I shared with my own covenant group on Monday night that um, my grandmother and other members of my extended family and I have been estranged for about five or six years now. And there's a lot of reasons for that, none of which really I have much control over at all. And that's disappointing. It's heartbreaking, really. And uh, just this last week, my grandmother reached out to me to wish me a happy birthday and wrote in the note, I'd love to see you. And to be perfectly honest with you, I I don't know how I'm processing that. I'm still processing it. But in the midst of processing that, I had a conversation with my dad. And... um, My dad and I have our own struggles. (laughs) We have our own disagreements. Uh, To put that into perspective, my dad is a retired Baptist minister. So, obviously not the route I went. So when Jesus shows up, it's usually to start arguments with us. (laughs) But even though uh, my dad was the first person to introduce Jesus to me, I think over the years we've both kind of stopped expecting Jesus to show up in our conversations. Um, Mostly to start those arguments, which neither one of us want to have. And yet this week, you know, he he gives me a hard time because I don't pick up my phone all the time and I'm terrible at returning texts, which, like, he's right. Uh, So pick up your phones when your parents call. Um, He gives me a hard time. So he called me this week and I was like, I'm going to pick it up. So I picked up and we got to talking and, and I asked him, you know, I told him about the situation, and, and he knows what's going on, and told him that I, my grandmother wants to see me. And, you know, I asked him what to do. <laughs> and he said, you know, very gently, you know, he's retired, so he's good at this. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't get to preach that often anymore. But he said, <laughs> he said, you know, John, if, if, if Christ lives, like if God lives, if Jesus has been raised, then 
forgiveness is always possible. Reconciliation is always real and actual. It can happen. And he didn't, he didn't suggest it in a way that made me feel guilty or bad. Like, you should have been a Baptist. <laughs> um, but, but hopeful. It gave me hope. And somehow in our conversation, you know, I'd been chewing on this scripture. Somehow I, I just, I sensed that like somehow Jesus had joined our conversation. That we were walking to Emmaus and Jesus showed up. What are you guys talking about? Uh, and I'm sure that it was Jesus because for my dad and I to see eye to eye on a matter of theology at this point is like going to take a miracle. going to take Jesus actually working in our lives. And my dad was a witness to me that Jesus still interrupts us on the road away from our disappointments, on the road away from our grief, that it's still possible. I wasn't expecting that at all, at all. Who knows how the incognito Jesus is going to appear? But if I'm reading Luke right, I'm pretty sure that if it's the risen Christ, we probably won't see it coming. Catch us by surprise. So the question is, Are we open to that? Luke tells us that as daylight was running out, Cleopas and his friend invited Jesus to come to dinner with him. Where Jesus takes bread, he blesses it and breaks it and gives it to them. And at that moment, they recognize him. They see him for who he is. It says their eyes were opened. He was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Their eyes were opened. How many of us need our eyes to be opened to see the stranger who is really Christ coming to preach good news to us? How many of us need our eyes opened so that we can see beyond our disappointments, so we can see through our grief? How many of us need our eyes to be opened to see the new life that Christ offers to us because he was raised from the dead? Just as their eyes were opened as they broke bread together, the meal we are about to have today opens our eyes as well. It opens our eyes to see the risen Christ who invites us to participate in his life, in his mission in the world. You know, many times when we gather at this table, we pray that the Holy Spirit would make the bread and the cup be for us, the body and blood of Christ, so that we may be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood to the world. So as we take this meal, we, we are caught up in what God is doing in Jesus Christ. But this meal is not just a story of Christ's death. It's not just a story of his body being broken and his blood being shed that we kind of come forward and take rather gloomily. This meal is also a sign of the resurrection because if Christ were not raised... He would not be able to be present to us through the power of the Holy Spirit here in these ordinary elements. Because Christ is raised, we can gather at this meal to meet Christ here. This Eucharist communion makes no sense without the resurrection. And so this is a time for feasting. It's a time to celebrate. And by coming back to this table again and again and again, we actually maybe start to find an answer to this question. What good would it be for the life of the world if God lives? 
Because the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we dramatize in this meal, is that the worst thing is never the last thing. That's what we dramatize. That's what we tell each other when we take this meal. The worst thing is never the last thing. We are more than the worst thing that we've ever done. Forgiveness is always possible. Transformation happens because reconciliation is is actual. It's real. And that transformation usually happens while we are on the road to nowhere, reeling from our own disappointments, from our own heartbreak. And each time we meet together, and we break this bread, and we share this cup, we tell the world, but we also tell ourselves that Jesus Christ is crucified, that he is raised. And because of that, the worst thing is never the last thing. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we take this meal, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, that this bread and this cup might be for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that we might be the body of Christ for the world, redeemed by his blood. So now your Holy Spirit upon us as we take this meal, as we meet Christ here. And I ask that in the breaking of this bread, that you would be made known to us. And send us out from here to proclaim this good news in our very lives. In your name we pray. Amen.